Good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you as always. Hey, uh, this weekend, uh, this past week, we had something happen on Wednesday, and it's kind of, we're right in between um, Sunday. So um, we had Veterans Day on Wednesday. So I want to take a moment, and anyone who is currently serving or has served um, in the armed forces, we'd love for you to stand so we can acknowledge you today and just thank you for what you're doing. So could you please stand if you are, have served? And... Thank you, Thank you. Thanks, guys. We appreciate what you've done and what your families also uh, have to do as, and the sacrifices they make to make that possible. So uh, join me in, pr- in prayer as we pray for the morning and also just uh, pray a prayer of thanks for these veterans um, who are here with us. God, we thank you so much for today. Uh, we do thank you for the men and women who have uh, served our country and who currently serve our country. We thank you for their families um, and how much they all give up for us. And so we're grateful for them today and ask that you would Bless them that you'd give them a special measure of your grace this week and just let them know that uh, we are grateful and stand with them. And Lord, we also pray for this morning. We pray that uh, my words would be yours and that the truth that we speak of today uh, would teach me even as I speak. Lord, let us be a church that is being transformed into your likeness for your glory and for your grace. So we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for this time this morning and give you this time now in your name. Amen. Well, one thing I love about this time of year is it is it's November. It is a San Diego cold day, and <laughs> which you know the the World Series just ended. We're in the middle of our college football season. The NFL is going on for football, and and we're kind of at that point where we're seeing which teams have a shot at playoffs and which ones don't. Those of you who play fantasy football, some of you know it's already time to give it up. You know, whatever it is, but this is kind of a good time of year. Basketball is beginning, and and for a guy like me, I love sports. So I I love this time of year, and and going into the holidays, and there's bowl games, and there's food, and it's you know it, it's really kind of a dream for me. I love that stuff. And it reminds me of, as a kid, I, growing up, I've lived kind of all over the country. And I lived in a few regions, kind of cold weather regions. I lived in Minnesota. I lived in St. Louis. I lived in Seattle for a while. And so when I get to the fall and the leaves begin to change and you have those few n- nights that are actually cold, it kind of always brings me back and reminds me of childhood. It reminds me of, I kind of grew up in those situations, whether I was living on an army base, my dad was in the army, or off base, it, it seems to very much always be the same. And for me, it was, we were kind of raised in just this like gang of kids. Anyone have that same kind of experience where you just, you felt like you were raised in a pack of people on your, on your block, a bunch of friends? Yeah, a few of us. It doesn't work that way now. Now we have to schedule play dates. But um, back, back, back then you just played. Um, it's just the way it works. So we, we were raised in this pack and it was very much like um, Charlie Brown. We didn't really know where the parents ever were. It's just every once in a while you just heard a little wah, 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 you know. But, but you were, Grew up on your block playing sports. You come home from school, and I remember from, from my friends and I, we would, it would be football, maybe basketball, um, pretty much anything just to play. And the other thing about that was you could be, we're the best friends, we're from all these diff- different backgrounds, coming together, different abilities, but once you divide up and you're on teams, now your gang is divided and, and the other guys are the enemies because we were guys and we're just 
naturally very competitive for no reason. You don't get anything for winning the flag football or the touch football game on the playground. But for us, it was all about this is now my team and you're not on my team. You're going down. And, and that was kind of a part of our growing up, something that I loved. Now, one of the regions I lived in, we had this other game that we played and it was in St. Louis. Now, St. Louis, there's one thing that I was a junior high boy and it, it was like a dream come true because I moved there and I realized that fireworks were legal year round all the time. And I'm not talking about California fireworks, you know, like the little tanks that go two feet and pop, you know, the little, and the little butterflies that spin a little, they come about this high off the ground and, and you know, those aren't fireworks. Those are, those are nice. Those are cute. I'm talking about fireworks, you know, uh, real firecrackers that pop, M80s, I mean, things that can blow a mailbox open. That, that's what I'm talking about. And you could go to the store and buy this stuff. And that was fantastic as a kid. We also had Roman candles. Roman candles were like these long tubes, and they shoot out uh, these flaming fireballs, which, again, think of it. You're in seventh grade. This is like God came to earth and said, look at this. Hold this thing, and it shoots about 300 feet in the air. Flaming fire. It's fantastic. And, and then we had bottle rockets. Bottle rockets are they're basically like firecrackers on a stick. And they're called bottle rockets because originally they're designed that you drop them in a bottle, the stick goes in the bottle, you light it, and they go in the air and pop. So we had all these year-round. So there's always a supply of fireworks in every junior high boy's house. Now, we developed a game with these fireworks. And again, there's some competition. Did I hear a little, oh, uh, <laughs> mothers are like, this cannot be going the right direction. <laughs> so the game we developed is, is we loved competition. So we would divide into teams and we'd all grab our fireworks. And basically, um, how do you describe it? It was a firework fight <laughs> is what it is, is you would take your fireworks and you would light them, firecrackers, sneak up on your friends, throw them at them. Hold the run. <laughs> I love the looks on some of the mother's faces right now. <laughs> um, Roman candles, they work very well to hold, and you could hit people from a very long distance. Fantastic. A lot of fun. Um, bottle rockets, we'd shoot it at each other. Now, <laughs> there were, and I, I wish this wasn't a true story, but it's very true. So we would have these, these competitions, but we were responsible junior hires. We we had rules. The rule was you had to have some sort of eye protection. It was um, sunglasses, swim goggles, welding helmet. It didn't matter. Just put something over your eyes because otherwise that's a little dangerous. I mean, come on. So we would have these firework wars. Now, the other thing about St. Louis that kind of took it up a notch, that was fantastic, was St. Louis is one of those places that it could be January and be 70 degrees outside. And then a cold front would come through, it would snow 12 inches overnight and be like 25 degrees the next week. That's just how it is there. So in the middle of winter, we get these huge snowstorms, a lot of snow. And so what we would do is you'd go out and say, firework war in the snow. It's the best of both worlds. Because what you get to do is you start building, we would build, we divide into teams and you start building fortresses out of the snow in preparation for our, our battle. So you'd start preparing these and, and you'd have these little holders where you'd stick the Roman candles through and, and your ammo depot and all the stuff that you start building. Now, when you, when you start the war, the way you know it starts is basically somebody gets bored. 
is, is how it starts. Someone gets bored, and while the other team's still building their fort, they light something like a Roman candle. They aim at you, and while you're building it, all of a sudden there's flaming fireballs coming your way, and the war begins. That's just, that's just how it works. And um, I had to say it in the first service, because my boys were in the service. Um, this, by the way, was back when we didn't have seat belts, car seats, or helmets, so people didn't get hurt. <laughs> Nowadays, you can't do that. So anyone who has, you know, if you're in junior high now, you can't do this anymore because you get hurt. But back then, we didn't. So, okay. <laughs> but so you have these wars in the snow. And, and if someone said, what are the rules? Well, there is no rule. You light fireworks and you shoot them at each other. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory. So um, now, how the war ends, there's a couple things that you need to know how they end. There's a few things. One, a firework goes where it shouldn't and catches something on fire that shouldn't be on fire. Usually that would stop the war, especially in summertime. Maybe it would, you know, grass fires are iffy whether that stops it or not. That just kind of makes it more real. But um, we had one time, you know, a bottle rocket went to my friend's house and caught his drape on fire. But um, it wasn't my house. I didn't get in trouble. So, uh, but, but that will so often stop the, the, the battle. Um, another thing is if somebody gets hurt, um, which is beyond what's reasonable. If they get hurt and you think you start thinking, well, that's a little sketchy that they just got hurt. And, and it was never because we really felt bad for them. It was just, I don't want that happening to me, so maybe we should quit while we're ahead. And it's like, I like both of my eyebrows. He only has one left. You know, <laughs> why don't we call it quits for the day? <laughs> and, and normally that would stop the battle. Um, the other one could be you run out of fireworks. And it's not when one side runs out, by the way. <laughs> I'd never stop the fight. That has made it more fun. <laughs> what stops it is when both sides are out of fireworks. Now, if you do it in the snow, though, and one side, this is really important, by the way. This has a point. <laughs> if you do it in the snow and one side runs out of fireworks, then you just resort to the next closest thing, and also wonderful for junior high boys, yes, yeah, snowballs, which when you become an adult, you realize snowballs are from Satan himself. But when you're 12... You love snowballs. You think snowball fights are great. So someone runs out of fireworks, then the other side starts pegging you with snowballs. Uh, and, and by the way, snowball fights end the same way fireworks end. You break something shouldn't have been broken, like a window, which I've only seen a couple times. Um, someone gets hurt too much to where it's a little sketchy, or you just kind of are tired of making snowballs. But, but there's one other thing that for our fights always stopped it. And that's when we have, we're, we're one big group of friends, but we divide up. And when we are divided, like, we are, like, we're enemies. We're going at it. We're, but we're having fun. But we are definitely against each other. But one thing always stopped that battle. And that is, if another group of kids from the neighborhood are coming by, and they decide they're going to ambush, they decide, oh, we're going to join in the fun, and maybe it's now resulted to just a snowball fight and like four or five kids come up and sneak up and try to attack one of the teams and start throwing snowballs. What happens is our two enemies that have been fighting the last hour or two or three, now all of a sudden are united. <laughs> and whoever comes on our turf, we say, whoa, 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 don't be throwing snowballs, it's dangerous. So then it's on. Then we'll attack them and we are together. We're united. Now, admittedly, this is a very weak transition to the text today. However, <laughs> we, 
what we're looking at today is we're looking at how in the body of Christ, there's all these differences that we bring and we come from different sides, but in Christ, we find this unity in this new family. This new family that binds us together. And today as we continue our series in the book of Ephesians, we find that Paul transitions from the first couple chapters talking about your individual identity, the fact that Jesus has called you, he's made you unique, he's created you for a unique purpose, and there's all of this about who you are in Christ as an individual. Today, Paul turns the page and says, because of what Jesus has done to make you who you are, to prepare you for who you are, now you need to know, with all this great diversity, that sides that have been formerly against each other, People that are very different now come together and are united as one family in Christ. And I thought a funny fireworks story would be a perfect way to introduce that. But as we get started now, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. And just to get you up to speed, is we, as we've been studying through this, just a few reminders. Paul is writing this letter to the church, uh, which is a gathering of Christians in a region of the world uh, a, a city called Ephesus in the surrounding region. And we believe that, well, we know that Ephesus is now today in western Turkey. And the people who were there were mostly people who were Roman citizens from the Greco-Roman world. Most of them were not Jewish people, but they were, they were so they would be called Greeks or Gentiles in Scripture. And they became followers of Jesus. So that is who he's writing to here. And, and so when we see this, we have to know that this is the context. These are the people that Paul's writing to. Now, another thing about them, Paul, about this letter is Paul is likely writing this letter while being in prison. And he is in prison at this time. He was arrested in Acts chapter 21. And supposedly for bringing Gentiles, non-Jews, from Ephesus into areas of the temple where they were not permitted to go. Now, Luke, who's a writer of Acts, actually makes it clear that Paul never did that, but that's what they accused him of, and they arrested him, and were going to, they wanted to kill him for this. So we're going to look at that in just a moment. But that's the context that Paul is writing with right now. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He starts off and says, Therefore, remember. Now, the therefore, he, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Dale was teaching us and taught us about uh, that we are saved by grace. It's the work of God, that God has done in our lives. It's not because of the work we've done. It's Jesus Christ has done a work in our lives. We're saved by this grace. And now we're created because of God's grace to do good works. So Paul says, therefore, because of that truth, remember that formerly you... The Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and you were without God in the world. Now let's stop right there. And a little bit of background again is, is Paul is writing to these new followers of Jesus, he says, remember that you were Gentiles. You were called the uncircumcision, uh, uncircumcision by those who are of the circumcision. In other words, you were called non-Jews by the Jews. And it's important to remember that Christianity began 
It was part of Judaism, and Jesus came as the Messiah that their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, pointed to a Messiah. And Jesus, being a Jew, came and fulfilled those scriptures as the Messiah. And the very first Christians were all Jewish followers. They were all Jews who believed that Jesus was the, was the Messiah, so they began following him. So at the very beginning, Christianity was, was a branch of Judaism. So those who, to this point, if you were Gentile, meaning non-Jew by birth, that you were on the outside of this movement. But of course, Jesus had said it's for everyone, and scriptures pointed that way. And Paul, who was a very devout religious Jew, a Pharisee, became a missionary to, specifically to non-Jews. Okay? So that's what's happening here. So Paul is writing to these people that he reached out to. But he's reminding them of how the system used to work. And he says, those of you who are Gentiles, you used to. And he explained the human condition apart that was the human condition apart from God. Now, it's important to understand a, a little more background. The Jewish people, according to Scripture, according to the Old Testament, what we call it the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, calls the nation of Israel to be God's chosen people to be a demonstration community to the rest of the world. In other words, God chose one group of people so that through this group, he could demonstrate his character, his standards, his holiness to the watching world. It wasn't just because God said these people are better and no one else will ever measure up. It's because he said, I want a people for my own who I can reveal who I am to them. And through their lives, as they follow my commands, they will be a, a demonstration to the watching world of who I am. And it's all pointing up to the point in which when Christ comes, their Messiah, now that is even opened up into greater uh, avenues. But to this point, the Jews were used by, by God specifically to show the world who he was. And Paul's reminding them of this. He says, remember that you, before Christ, were separated. And there's, a few, there's five things that he mentions. One, he says, you were separated from Christ. You're separate from God because of um, where you were, how you were born. You're excluded from God's people, he said, or you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, you weren't allowed to be a part of the God's chosen people at this time before Christ. Now, by the way, God always extended grace and always had an offer to the world to join and be a follower of Yahweh, even if you were not born as a Jew. We see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, those who were non-Jews were welcomed into the family of God. One of the most famous phrases is in Ruth, where she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I want to be a part of this. And, and the creator God of the universe always had an open arm for those who wanted to follow him. But to this point, politically and, and religiously, he said you were excluded from this chosen race as Gentiles to this point. You were strangers to the covenant, to the promises of God. In other words, you, you weren't sure, you weren't privy to what, how God was working in the lives of people. You didn't understand how he reached out with his unconditional love, how he reached out with his unconditional uh, promises to his people. You were strangers to this. You didn't even know about these things. You're having no hope, he said. Having no hope. 
So you're separate from Christ, you're excluded from God's people, strangers to the covenant, and having no hope was the other thing. Now you might say, Ryan, you know, people who don't follow God, it's not like it's a completely hopeless world. Well, Paul is identifying a different type of hope here. Because we all have things that we can hope in in our daily lives. People who are not followers of any God, who don't believe in God, can have certain elements of hope in their life. We all hope that a raise that we get will make a difference. We hope that our retirement accounts will be, give us security. We hope that our kids get the right teacher to give them better opportunities. We hope that their coach is a good coach who will help them develop as an athlete or as a singer, a performer, or someone doing speech. We hope that our kids have an opportunity to be great because we know if they have the right opportunity, they are the next Einstein for sure. But we hope in these types of things. And and those aren't necessarily empty hopes. Those are hopes that we can have. But Paul is going beyond that and saying, you're without, without God, we're without hope of something deeper. Even this last weekend, we saw how the world can quickly lose hope with the tragedies in Paris. Earlier in that day, there was also two bombings in Beirut where 43 people were killed. Both, both instances at the hands of terrorists who want to make people feel despair and fear. You see, without God, it's hard to find hope in those situations. There's not much to hope for. But Paul, so Paul's making a, distinct, a distinction and saying those who are included in the family of God, there's a different kind of hope. And when you're on the outside of it, yeah, you can go through life, but at the end of the day, there's something missing. And those who are part of the family of faith have a hope that goes much deeper. That says in the light of tragedy, in the light of, uh, in, in, in the light of all the things that happen in the world, we can still trust that God's on His throne and if our identity is secure and He's on His throne, things might not be the way I want them to be, but I can hope in something bigger, something better. Some people would say, oh, people who follow God, it's just a crutch. It's for the weak-minded. I've heard that argument. But I know plenty of very, very intelligent people throughout history. Millions who've come to the conclusion that it's reasonable to believe in God and it's reasonable to have hope when you're living with the belief and the understanding that there's a God who's in control and there's a plan out there. And Paul's saying, when you're outside of that family, you're without hope, without a real sense of hope. The fifth thing he mentions, he says, you're simply with, you were without God. Going through life without God. And again, some of you might say, I don't need God in my life to be strong. I can tell you that for me, I found that there's no other way I'd rather live. That I love having a life where I can trust that the creator of the universe is in control of things. I love having a life where I can wake up and read scriptures and get excited to think that there's a God who's at behind all of this. I love not going through life without God. So Paul paints a picture to the Ephesians, says, don't forget, that that's where you came from. 
This was your condition before Christ. And then in verse 13, he changes gears a little bit. And so let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus. So he started with the first two verses saying, understand that this is who you were and who your identity collectively was as Gentiles. You were outside looking in without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He's the one who made both groups into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which in the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having by it put to death the hatred that existed. Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. I love that last phrase. He preached peace to those who were far from God, but he also preached preached peace to those who were near. In these verses here, Paul is now saying, you used to be like this. The Gentiles used to have this identity, but I want you to see what happens In Christ Jesus. I want you to see how two sides that seemingly cannot exist now have unity in Christ. Who are now united and one and living in peace. First of all, we see this, that Jesus here is described as one who, he said, Jesus is our peace. He is our peace because he breaks down the dividing wall that existed. Now, it's interesting that he uses this terminology because the dividing wall is actually referencing something that existed in the time of Christ and the time of Paul. The dividing wall was this wall that um, was on the Temple Mount. So Herod the Great built what we call the Second Temple. And he enlarged the Temple Mount and made this huge platform and, and fixed up the temple and made the temple nice, and but made this... He, he wanted it to be his most grand building project for the whole world to see. He loved it so much, he wanted Jews and Gentiles to be able to go on the Temple Mount and see the splendor of this temple that he built. But Herod knew that Jews, or excuse me, Gentiles should not be in contact with the temple, the Jewish temple, because it was a holy place. And he knew that according to Jewish tradition, that would defile it. So he built something called a dividing wall. Now, archaeologists have found uh, warning signs, and we have a picture of one here. Uh, The Jewish historian named Josephus wrote about these signs. He said that these signs existed at the time of Christ. They existed at the time when Paul uh, was writing. And these warning signs, I know it's a little fuzzy, but those of you who are fluent in Koine Greek can read it, and and. In Greek, essentially, it says this. I'm going to translate a little bit for you. But the gist of it is this, what this says. And these were on the Temple Mount. It said, any Gentile who enters the space around the temple, past the dividing wall, will be responsible for his own death that will ensue. <laughs> so this basically says, Gentiles, feel free to go near the temple but also know that you're going to die if you do so. Uh, it would be similar to uh, 
our parents saying, if you shoot Roman candles at each other, it is your fault if you burn your eyebrow off. (laughs) Tough love. Just go learn, right? That's really what this is saying. Any Gentile who goes in there, just know it's your fault when you die. (laughs) Now these signs, archaeologists have found a couple of them. We're on, and we'll go to the next slide here. Here's a rendering of, of how they believe it probably looked. This whole structure up there is, is what we today call the Temple Mount. The temple no longer exists. Some of the outside retaining walls still exist to this day. The western wall is a retaining wall. So these walls, uh, you have the outer wall. You have the temple in the middle. Now take a look at the smaller fence around the temple. Do you see that? It's about three. It kind of looks like a police barricade. This is the dividing wall. So Gentiles were allowed to walk around on the Temple Mount on the outside of that, but they were not allowed to cross the dividing wall near the temple. And it was here where there were signs that say, Gentiles, you are not welcome in here or you will die. So when Paul is writing in Ephesians, and he says, Jesus Christ has torn down the dividing wall. He is our peace. He makes the two into one the image becomes very clear. The readers would hear this and think, oh, Jesus is making the temple accessible to all. And now remember, the temple isn't where God dwelled, but it was their symbolic belief of God's presence. And Paul is saying, in Christ, the barriers are torn down, and the two now can be one. Now, most of us in this room have never had to live through situations where we have been kept out based on who we are. Most of us. We've never come to a fence that said, you are not welcome beyond this point because of your race, because of whatever, your religion. But imagine how that feels. When you're told this is where the God of the universe of creation exists and you are not in. How does that feel? Paul is saying that's not how it is supposed to be. Jesus tears down that wall and says in Christ the barriers are gone. And there's one family. That's what peace looks like. We look at the life of Jesus and he lived outside of that wall. We see that Jesus visited the outcast. He welcomed in the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Those who were not allowed past that wall because they were ceremonially unclean. We know that Jesus healed the Roman soldier's daughter. They weren't even allowed past the dividing wall. But Jesus says, no, no, our God extends grace to you. We see through Jesus' life that as he broke down the walls, he even tells us the story of the Good Samaritan. He reminds us that so many of us live with this wall somewhere in our lives where we say, these people are out, these people are in. And Jesus says, if you have that wall, you don't get it. In the family of God, the walls are torn down. The walls are torn down in me. And so when Paul's writing here, he says, Jesus tears down these walls. And when he tears down the walls, it removes the need to hate each other. 
the two can become one. Now, Paul never, by the way, says Jewish people should become non-Jewish in their, in their heritage. He totally, he, Paul was a Messianic Jew. There are people in our family of faith here at Seacoast who grew up with a Jewish identity. They're Messianic followers of Christ. Their identity is still special. They don't lose that in Christ. They're followers of Jesus with a Jewish background. But what's different is our differences there doesn't, it's no longer a form for, or a reason for division. Now there's unity because the God of the universe welcomes, welcomes all of us in. That's the beauty of this. And Paul says, peace is preached by Jesus. A friend of mine leads a ministry in Israel. He's actually a Palestinian Christian. He's lived there. His family's been there, they say, as long as they can trace back. Followers of Jesus there in as a Palestinian Christian, he began a ministry. He was also uh, the dean of students at Bethlehem Bible College. Um, very well educated. But he started a ministry called Musalaha, which in Arabic essentially means reconciliation. And this ministry com- is aimed at helping Palestinian Christians and Israeli Messianic Jews to break down the walls and reconcile with one another. They won't even extend it beyond just any Palestinian and, and Israeli Jews to have reconciliation. But they're beginning with those of the faith. They do summer camps out in the desert where they bring youth from both sides and they spend a week of high school camp seeking reconciliation and peace. At the end of one of the camps, here's what one of the participants wrote. Uh, I have a slide for you. and It's very difficult to read on the screen, so I'll read it for you. It says, God has called us to be peacemakers. And in circumstances that we live in, peace is needed. Through such encounters of youth from many different cultures and backgrounds, they can be the way to be these peacemakers that God wants us to be. Reconciliation to me means being part of a united body of Christ, no matter how different the people in it are. Isn't that great? Written by a 15-year-old. That last line, once again, reconciliation means being a part of the united body of Christ, no matter how different the people in it are. That is peace, where the dividing wall is broken down. So as Paul keeps preaching here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, let's finish it up. He now says that wall's broken. There's peace that's exist, that can exist for all of us. In verse 18, he says, why? Because through Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You no longer are strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself is our cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Paul now ends with five realities that now exist because of what Jesus has done. I'm going to tell them to you pretty quickly, put them on the screen. He says the reality now, your new reality, because of the peace that Jesus brings is one, you are one in spirit. You have one spirit. And this is in opposition to the earlier problems we mentioned, which said that you were separated from God. Now we're one in spirit. Two, you have access to the Father and as opposed to being strangers to the covenant, to the promises of God. Now we have direct access to the creator God of the universe. You're fellow citizens. You're part of God's household. This is in contrast to saying you're alienated or separate from the people of Israel. Now we're fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. You're being built into the temple of the Lord. 
And that's in opposition to saying you no longer have hope. Nowhere to belong. Now you're the temple of the Lord. You're the dwelling place where God exists. You know, the picture in Scripture is that the followers of Jesus are the place where God's presence is now made known. There should be an overwhelming sense of hope that comes from His people. The watching world should see and experience and understand what hope looks like through you and through me. Because we are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. We're being built into the temple of the Lord. And then the last one was dwelling place for God. His presence is in us. We invite the worship team to start making their way up. And as we look at this, the message that Paul is giving us is from all of these differences, Jews and Gentiles in his context, I wonder what our differences are today. Fewer of us are, are struggling with Jew, the difference between Jews and Gentiles, but we have different political beliefs. Maybe you have some different theological convictions. Maybe we come from different backgrounds, socioeconomical barriers, racial barriers. Paul would say in Jesus Christ there's peace. And the church, which is designed to be this picture of all these families coming together, we are the picture of peace to the watching world. The church continues the mission of Jesus. We are the symbol now of the broken barriers, of the dividing walls that are gone. I think of it as a family reunion. Anyone grow up going to family reunions? I, uh, I had, we used to do big family reunions. My families were farmers, so they do that. But both sets of my extended family are from Minnesota, and I have family members that still are from the backwoods. They, they come out of the sticks just for reunions. <laughs> I have one, I kid you not, we were at a family reunion and he brought a coleslaw salad to share because, you know, you got to do it like share your food. And he said, yeah, I normally put beaver meat in there, but I was all out. <laughs> and I just looked at my parents and said, I was adopted, right? I'm not, this, is, this cannot be my people. <laughs> but the cool thing about that is if I ever was in need or any of my family was in need and I gave them a call or rode the pony out to find them wherever they live, <laughs> every single one of them would welcome us in and say, you were family. They would give the coonskin hat off their head for me. <laughs> That's the picture of the church. Some of you are really, really quirky. <laughs> But together, the barriers are broken. And when we together are following and serving and worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing more beautiful to the rest of the world than that. And when one of us is in need and we're there for each other, that is the picture that Paul is painting. Rich Mullins, a songwriter, said this, I'm a Christian not because someone explained the nuts and bolts of Christianity to me but because the people of the church were willing to be the nuts and bolts. As we end our time here today, the challenge for us is, can we be the nuts and bolts of Christianity to one another? Can we be the nuts and bolts of Christianity to the watching world? That's what we're called to. To break down the barriers that Christ has broke down and live as a family.
Pray with me. God, we thank you for this time. And I thank you so much that in you, you broke down all barriers. And God, as humans, we love to create barriers. We love to create differences, often so that we can feel better about who we are. But Lord, I thank you that in you, you've broken those walls down. And you didn't make us different, but you said now that as different people live together and show the world what my hope is. Show the world what peace looks like. And so God, we thank you for that challenge. We give you this time now and we worship you in this last song. It's a sign of unity of saying we are a happy family because of what you have done. So we give you this time now, Lord, in your name. Amen. I want to ask you to go ahead and stand for this last song. Let's stand together as a family. And let's turn our attention back as we worship God this one final song here.